The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Maura Aaronsmealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change. What is useful work to be doing right now? Today's guest asks herself this question. It's a question so many of us are struggling with. As the breadth of the world's need for change becomes overwhelming, the old ways of working aren't working. Everything is different. And I think so many of us feel we've been thrown off a path that we've worked so hard to get on. We're angry and we're confused and we're anxious. What's next? And what matters anyway? Arthi Shahani is a perfect translator for these tough questions. Someone who, when fate and the justice system took her off her path as a teenager and upended her entire life, fought like hell, and eventually created her own rich and important work. We talk about managing your anxiety and your internal drives when the world doesn't seem to give you a choice about what you have to do. Imagine, at a young age, you're doing all the right things. You're brainy. You're on the way to a good college. You have dreams of achieving glory in Model UN. But then, your life changes overnight and you're quickly swept up in the world of false legal convictions and a broken immigration system. That's what happened to today's guest, author and journalist Arti Shahani, when she was still in her teens. Her father, an immigrant, on the advice of his lawyer, pled guilty to a money laundering charge. This experience led Arti to dive deep into the gross injustices in our criminal and immigration systems here in the U.S., She then went on to become a reporter for NPR, you may have heard her, and she wrote a book about her experience with her family called Here We Are, American Dreams, American Nightmares. I speak with her about success, single-minded drive, coming out of what feels like a 10-year anxiety attack, challenging the system, and letting go. I was curious, actually, does the journalist in you, I mean, we're living with all this existential dread and anxiety, and then a lot of us have the voices in our head and the stress that we we drive ourselves internally with. And I was just curious as a journalist, like, you're trained to be objective, mm-hmm. right? How do you report on issues of mental health and stress and burnout? You've done stories on all those topics. Because, you know, emotions aren't factual. They're they're not concrete. There's I always say there's no blood yeah. test for anxiety. Mm. Mm. So why why are why are these topics like stress and identity and burnout important for you to explore? But also how do you put your you know your sort of journalistic lens right, on it? Right. So I mean it's it's so interesting that you're asking that because you know more like something I was thinking about was what is useful work to be doing right now. Because I know that part of what drove Mm. me to journalism was this idea to like expose and indict what is broken. And I've got to say, not just this year, but the last 
handful of years, I've really questioned how much more that's really needed compared to, frankly, giving people hope, um, but hope grounded in, in facts, in something meaningful, not kind of like a fluffy escapist set of like social media, you know, utopian fantasies, but like hope grounded in reality. So it's interesting that you're asking me about this because like what I mean for me is that, you know, I just wrote my first book, okay? And coming out of that book, you know, like, all right, girl, you know, you can report, you know, you can write, you know, you love telling stories and you also want to really help fix problems like on a mass scale. And so I actually created my own beat. I'm calling it creating my own beat. I'm actually launching a show soon. The purpose of my show is to investigate and tell stories of power, how people build power, how people use power how you can learn from them what power actually is and how it works. And I want to inject into that show a really healthy dose, frankly, of my own sense of morals and ethics. You know, like I'm not trying to claim I don't have opinions and feelings about what should happen in this world. I also know I have a voracious appetite for people who disagree with me and I have a, an ability to like really respect and want to hear people who we, we wouldn't fall on the same party line per se. And so for the next year, I'm basically throwing in myself into that kind of investigative skill set. So finding stories that will help a mass public live, live a more meaningful life, because we all know that things aren't working and there's enough distrust at this point with kind of various institutions that maybe a few decades ago we did trust, right? Like people, people have a sense of calling people. And, you know, like, I think that's great. I want more people to have a sense of calling. Younger people have a crazy sense of calling because they're like, you know, y'all screwed things up. (laughs) Everyone who I talk to who tend to be, you know, in my network, like pretty type A individuals who like to try to control things as much as possible over the past eight months or so were coming to me because they know I like to talk about anxiety and just saying like I have no I have no idea where I'm where I'm going what I'm doing what tomorrow will be everything is just so uncertain and it's like they've been thrown off this path of course the path was an illusion but whatever and I was thinking about this new life where so many of us who have worked so hard to follow the path that we have been led towards and that we feel like we maybe have chosen we just were mired in uncertainty. We have no control. And I thought of you and your story. And I wanted to ask you, so just you basically must have spent over a decade, a very formative decade, mired in not just uncertainty, but a fight to save your father, a fight to save your family. How did you how did you live? You know, in your book, you talk about you went to school, you you went, you got into the University of Chicago, like you achieved, you had some normal teenage mm-hmm. life, I think. And at the same time, you were fighting for your father and nobody was helping you and you had no sense of what would happen. How did you live mm. that way for a decade with that mm. uncertainty? Man, all the... Sorry, that was a really long lead up. No, no, no. It's really good. It's just, you know, I'll be honest, like I've had the opportunity to do many, many, many um, interviews and conversations about the book, about Here We Are. And um, no one's asked it to me that way. 
because like basically you're like, you know, girl, you you're like a first generation immigrant survivor. <laughs> what tips do you have for the rest of us? <laughs> and like the thing is grints, migrants, whichever term you want to use, like we are by design, certainly for the first leg of our life in this country, really forced to live with things that now everyone relates to, just like having no idea what's going to happen the next day. So as I was recounting in my memoir, Here We Are, my family were first-generation immigrants, okay? We came here when I was a baby. We were undocumented for quite a few years. We got our papers. We thought everything was going to be okay. And then my father ended up being arrested. When he got arrested, it basically appended my entire life, Um and it's, in broad brushstrokes, his case that was supposed to be settled in eight months ended up spiraling into a 14-year legal battle, frankly, because of various mistakes and missteps in the legal system in the U.S. And so my entire childhood up until age 30, like literally from my teen years to 30, was defined by the constant threat of imprisonment and or deportation of my father. You know, I describe it in my book as living in a more than decade-long anxiety attack. And it's basically, and I didn't actually know it at the time, like any, any of us who are very anxious, like you know this, that it's hard to realize that you're having an anxiety attack or a protracted one, sometimes until it's over. And then during it, you just can't think that clearly or there's like this kind of frenetic energy around you at all times, right? So like for me, when my father's life was falling apart and I couldn't stand it anymore, and I decided I was going to try to put up a fight. And how old were you? I was 16 when he was arrested. I was about 19 when I became my family lawyer. I fought until I was 30. And once I got my head around the nature of the crisis at hand, it really helped me to both grapple with it and continue to have a quote unquote normal life. So like when you get hit with a surprise, right? Like I was hit with, hey, there's like a legal case and then they're going to add a second punishment, which is lifelong deportation after that. And like, I was like, wait, what, what are you talking about? Like I, I basically got hit with a series of surprises. And like when you get hit with surprises, so say you're going bankrupt, say that your partner files for divorce, say you wake up one day and the newspapers tell you there's a pandemic that could kill you at any moment, like whatever the surprise is, like the typical cycle, right? Is that you're reeling, your inner wiring instantly comes out. So if you're like, you know, prone to anxiety, it's going to show. If you're prone to depression, it's going to show. If you're prone to like sheer optimism, it's going to show. Like your inner wiring just comes out. Your reflexes, like are you passive or lethargic in the face of adversity? Are you proactive? Like all of that comes out, but you're still gathering information, right? Because you actually don't understand the nature of what's confronting you. And so you have to, unfortunately, well, whether you're patient or not, you're going to have to basically give it time to see the situation clearly. And the very best thing you can do for yourself is keep those eyes open and be willing to gather information, even if it's bad news, 
and or if it's good news. So I know in my father's situation and my family's situation, once I stopped being an abject denial about what was going on, mm-hmm. after I got past like my very irrational emotional <laughs> reactions and I developed a kind of curiosity that's kind of like, okay, what next? Okay, what next? Okay, what next? Okay, what you got? Like, once that reflex kicked in, the, the reflex I'm talking about is just assume that nothing will go according to plan. And it takes some training to get that reflex. But if you experience nothing going according to plan enough, you will develop that reflex. You know, like you'll stop being attached to the idea that anything is going to work according to plan because it doesn't. And then suddenly you're like, you know, because expectation is a source of suffering, right? Mm -hmm. Like you let go of that expectation and then you free yourself to respond to the situations that are there. It's almost, you know, like you had the ultimate learning mindset versus fixed mindset, Mm. Mm. the way you're describing it Mm. now that you were, you were open and curious in the face of all this horror. Mm -hmm. When you say those terms and I, I know where they come from, what it reminds me of is a very specific moment when I was in college. Okay. I was in my junior year. I was 19 years old and I basically made a decision that I was going to stop going to college so that I could focus on my family's legal problems. And you know, Before I had made that decision, and as a kid, okay, like I was really attached to a version of my life that was, you know, finish four years of school, get a really fancy job straight out of it, and then immediately apply to law school and, you know, kill it, kill it, kill it. Like I I had it all planned out, like all planned out. And then I saw this crisis unfolding where somebody I loved really needed me and I happened to have a skill set that was relevant. You know, like I'm the youngest daughter in my traditional family, but because of my mouth and my capacity to read and write, my mouth, I mean, I got a mouth on me and I know how to use it. You know, I I had the skill set that my family needed. I basically decided to let go of the plan, okay? And I was like, actually, Arthi, Only I called myself Artie back then. I didn't know how to pronounce my own name. I was like, actually, Artie, just take a break from school. It's going to be here. It's a very big campus. It's not going anywhere. Go home. They need you at home. Be there for the people you love. Throw yourself into it. Learn what you can about the law. Build the alliances you can build. Build the campaign you can build. Fight, fight, fight. And I was learning these terms as I was going along. I didn't know what a campaign was until I started building one. But when I decided to do that, I would say that so much of my anxiety, it got channeled into productive work. And that Mm. really helped, right? But did any of the catastrophizing or the sort of because because right like anxiety is especially anxiety driven by bad news is all about fear of the worst case scenario happening in the future right mm-hmm. um and it sounds like you sort of made peace with the worst case scenario no 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 no, no. no okay no i didn't i didn't and that's a great distinction i was not at peace with the worst case scenario if i were i don't think that i would have been able to fight mm. um or actually rather, maybe, God, it's such a good thing that you're raising because 
you know, in Buddhist practice, I'm Buddhist. You actually want to, you want to reach a level where you are okay with whatever the outcome may be, but still in the day to day, you can channel yourself. You can channel your energy. So fight with everything you've got, but with non-attachment. I haven't reached that level yet. So I can, I can safely say I was incredibly attached to an outcome. My fear was that my father in his short prison sentence would be gang raped and killed at Rikers Island. Mm. That was one fear. And it was a, it was actually a feasible fear that doesn't come from nowhere. Why don't you tell people who may not know what Rikers Island is? Yeah, Rikers Island is hell on earth. It's a jail in New York City right by LaGuardia Airport. New York City is now, after decades and decades, finally agreeing to shut it down because they've come to realize, oh, actually, it is a den for violence to be perpetrated from prisoner against prisoner. Uh, It should never have been built. It should never have existed. And that's where my father was. So my fear was that he's going to die this way. And some social worker is going to give me a call while what? I'm like in my history class, you know, like, what is that? Um, Or my other fear would be that my father would survive Rikers Island and then be immediately exiled from the United States. And that would mean that he would be sent to India, a country in which he hadn't lived literally since the 1950s. And what? My mom would have to go with him. So then I'd be separated from my mom and my dad. I'd have to start sending, me and my siblings, we'd have to start sending money to them over there and supporting them and having a home over there. You know, I've been financially independent since I was 17 years old. And so we were already, you know, as as first-generation migrants, this stuff is common, okay? Like, you take up responsibility, you pay your parents' bills because they did the hard work of getting us here. You got to do the hard work of keeping us here. You know, that's that's normal. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. What did you learn about anxiety from... I mean, you said you're an anxious person, I guess. When did you realize that? And, and your parents' story of coming to this country, I can't even imagine the anxiety 
that they felt living their lives, getting to New York City. And so as you were growing up, did you understand what anxiety was? Was it in your household? Um, And did you absorb it? Oh, you know, it's such a, I'm like, damn, girl, you asked the great questions. (laughs) (laughs) I'm loving this like through line. Man. <laughs> it's all about your feelings. <laughs> no, it's just like I, I'm just uh, – it's, it's, it, I guess like I'm – just like migrant is such a strong part of my identity, I'm now realizing that anxious is such a strong part of my identity. Um, it's like that's kind of amazing. Yeah, I mean, listen, I definitely learned it from watching them. I mean, they were stressed a lot, you know. Like they brought three little kids to live in a one-bedroom apartment in New York City – that was like roach infested and the heat didn't work in the winter and they could barely scrape by. My mom got hit by a car and, you know, it was a hit and run. Her, her vertebrae was fractured permanently. She lost her ability to sew, which was what her, her profession was. She was making wedding dresses off the books. My father, you know, he spoke six languages. Actually, both my parents did. He could multiply very large numbers in his head. He was a very smart guy, photographic memory. The best job he could get was $5 an hour shoveling snow or sweeping streets. So, like, you know, I I remember, like, as a child, like, age four and five, on the weekends, we would go to this flea market in Long Island, okay, Um, from Queens to Long Island. And I remember in the morning, before my parents opened their stall, they would stop at the breakfast stand to pick us up food. And the butter rolls were 25 cents and the cream cheese rolls were 75 cents. And I remember whenever my parents asked me, Arthi, what do you want? I would say butter roll. And I actually wanted the cream cheese roll, but I knew it cost more and I didn't want to put them in that situation. You took care of them. At five, Mm -hmm. you know? And I actually, I don't, I don't look back at that with regret. You know, I know people react to their childhoods very differently when they're adults. Um, I don't yet have children and I'll learn a lot about myself if and when I do. My sense is that that chapter of life taught me to be grateful for very little and taught me to value relationships because my parents didn't have money, but man, did they shower me with love. You know, they loved me and I knew it. Like I mattered to them. Um, my siblings mattered to them. The three of us were the center of our parents' lives, you know. And so I definitely saw from them how hard it can be when you've got no cash. Um, and I definitely saw from them also, though, just work hard. What does achievement mean to you, given looking back at as a young person, I mean, you're still pretty young and you've, you've fought for so much, a lot more than most people who are, what are you, 40? I'm 40. I'll be 41 really soon. I feel like people always want to ask people, you know, like people like me always ask immigrant first generation people, like, what does success mean? We, 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 I think we tend to assume that um, first generation kids are driven to succeed in a certain way. And so I'm curious with your perspective, you know, because you said when you were a kid, you wanted to be super normal, (laughs) which you could define for yourself. Well, yeah. Like I had a prototype for what success looked like. I mostly learned from like the 13 hours of television I watched a day. But yeah, seriously, 13 (laughs) for real. (laughs) 
what was that image of success? And then like, what what is it now? Yeah, no, I mean, like, the whole reason I wanted to be a prosecutor when I grew up is because, you know, in the 80s and 90s, there was like a lot of courtroom and legal drama, sitcoms and TV and series. Great and, ones. Yeah, oh that my was, God. it was the drug wars, you know, and so Hollywood was churning out that kind of stuff. And I kind of gleaned that, oh, a prosecutor is like a successful professional with power who cares about her community. And so that's mm-hmm. why I wanted that. My father's arrest taught me a lot about the justice system and that uh, I didn't want to be a part of it. I think it's too broken. So I don't think that um, for me, I was very turned off from channeling myself to even be a, a participant in the system. Mm-hmm. But you know, success, the meaning has evolved over time. I would say if I were to go in chapters, you know, it's kind of like in my 20s, success became so grounded in this kind of like rabid, voracious fight for an elusive kind of justice. <laughs> you know, it's like, like, but man, did I have energy and man, was oh, I yeah. like sprinting that marathon for justice, capital J. And then burnout. And then I think my 30s, success was, frankly, a lot of external validation. I want people to admire me. I want my credit score to be awesome and not crappy. I want to be a property owner. I want to have a professional title that people will swoon over. And I want to cultivate an actual skill that will pay me money. And I identify that skill, the skill that I know how to use and I know how to get paid for. It's storytelling. I actually, and it's actually something I was already doing in activism. It's something that then, you know, I I honed to a new level in journalism. And now in my 40s, the beginning of my 40s, I'm actually trying. I don't know if you know how to do this. Uh, I don't. And so maybe you can teach me. I'm trying to look at myself like I'm on the balcony watching a play and I'm trying to see who she is on stage and her strengths and her weaknesses. And before making some big commitments about what's next, I just want to see her clearly because I don't see her clearly. Like the fact that I constantly feel disappointed in myself. Like, listen, I wrote a book, as you were kind enough to read, that I've gotten, you know, readers have loved it. And frankly, I have loved it. I don't look at it with embarrassment like I do a lot of my work, you know? So why don't I feel at ease in that? Why don't I feel full in that? And I think that there's something there where, you know, through my 20s and 30s, the anxiety drove me and now I can see distinctly it gets in my way and I just don't know how to get it out of my way. You know, as, as I was listening, I was thinking, God, everything she does, she does so well. And I think that there's some of us, the older I get, the more I think that I think there's some of us who were that drive is just also who we are. And that's okay, too. I, I mean, everyone tells us that we should calm down and that we should just take a breath and be and be at peace. But maybe that's just not mm. what we're ever going to be. Mm. And we need to be at peace with that, too. You're, you're trying to be the voice on my shoulder or, you know. Well, I would love to be the voice on your shoulder because I, because I think that um, 
I think that one of the features of the achiever is that like we're unreliable narrators about ourselves. Um, and that drives us too. So you said that um, you sort of woke up from a decade-long anxiety attack. How did you know when it was over? Did you feel it? Like what made you say, okay, I'm done with it now? I knew it was over, so to speak, when I started asking myself questions I didn't think to ask through all of my 20s. Like, I asked myself, what do I want to do with my life? <laughs> like, you know, the, the question that was my central preoccupation up until that moment I stopped going to school to focus exclusively on fighting, you know, for my family and then for other families. Like, like when that ended, I kind of went back. In, in some ways, it felt like a reversion. Like, I felt kind of like a teenager again, kind of like, okay, mm -hmm. what do you want to do when you grow up? What do you want to do when you're not being like, you know, your parents' daughter? What do you want to do when you're not being an immigrant daughter? Or or doing God's work, you know? Yeah, or doing, but even when I say God's work, like, you know, that was so tied to my identity as fighting for my father, that like the way that I saw mm. how I related to that work, it didn't feel like a job. Like the people that I was working with and alongside and, you know, frankly, very, very rarely able to offer any real help that, that would move the needle, but they, they felt like my family to me, right? Like I regularly had my backpack ready to do a sleepover at some lady's home if her husband had been taken, you know, like that was sort of the beginning years or the beginning year, I'd say specifically, you know, I was best friends with my colleagues. They weren't my colleagues, they were my family. And so it's kind of like, I knew the anxiety attack was over when I just kind of went back to quote unquote normal questions. So girl, what do you want your career to be? <laughs> and you went to graduate school, right? You went to school. Yeah. yeah. Graduate school was basically how I like threw the A-bomb at my old, old identity and created a new one. Because, you know, you don't typically go from, from prison and immigrant rights activist to business journalism in Silicon Valley in a, in a national newsroom, uh -uh. right? That's not the usual trajectory. So I needed something for rebranding and graduate school is what I used for rebranding. I didn't go to journalism school. I went to the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. And like, I write, I write about this in my book. I'm like, you know, whenever people even say like, oh, I was in Cambridge, as opposed to just saying I was in Harvard, it's like, it's just kind of like false Blech. modesty because <laughs> no, like, you know, the fact is like, everyone knows this, how like, like Harvard is such a powerful brand. You know, they could actually let in more students than they do. I think they could let in something like 3x the number of students. I was listening to this professor, Scott Galloway, talk about this. They could let in 3x the number of students without ever sacrificing on quality. But he was recounting their explanation for not doing it. Now, this is according to him, is brand preservation. You know, exclusivity, the exclusivity of the brand. And I knew that, that hey, if I was going to rebrand myself to something that, you know, newsrooms that frankly already distrust people of color, journalists of color, like there's so much racism in newsrooms. I knew that to get through the door of gatekeepers, I would need to have credentials that, that they would want for their own children. I needed to have things that others would envy. I think that's a really smart strategy. And actually, I write about a version of that in my book um, mm. because I, mm -hmm. I call it leapfrogging or, or sort of mm -hmm. creating a strategic mm -hmm. pivot. It's something I learned when I worked in politics where I saw people who could start as like, frankly, a volunteer answering the phone in a political campaign and get hired on a 
presidential campaign who all of a sudden then after that campaign was over could go have their choice of jobs because it was so freaking cool that they worked on a presidential campaign. And I thought, God, this is really smart. Like if you can figure out how to align yourself Mm -hmm. and get accepted by a brand or something that is recognized as so exclusive – yeah, that's the, you know I that's I find I talk to uh, people I now mentor uh, about career and calling. It's like a lot of people are so frozen by all that they want to accomplish, they have a hard time breaking it down into bite-sized pieces. And I think that like just what you said and what you've written about, can you project five years out where you want to be? And then reverse engineer it. Well, and also paying attention to cues. Like you understood. And this is probably also because you had gone to really like you had inserted yourself into the halls of power. And knowing you, you probably, right, you learned, right, like the fanciest. You learned how the levers of power worked. You knew what levers you could pull to get yourself where you needed to be, right? Right. I was a scholarship kid to this very fancy school on on Manhattan's Upper East Side, the Brewerly School. It made me learn how to sit up straight and, frankly, how to impress people who were going to be able to open or close doors for me. You know, like, I started getting that training, frankly, not just with my teachers, but, like, with my, my new friend's parents. Like, I just started getting exposed to people who are CEOs, PhDs, doctors, lawyers, you know, like uh, founders, like just people who I wouldn't have known otherwise. And so I think it helped me to learn like what the cultural expectations are. You know, I don't mean to be crass about it, but in some ways like a well-trained animal. I, I don't think that's unfair given that power is held by such a small group of people and that we all have to behave a certain way to fit into this broken system. I think that's right. Yeah. Well, so, okay, here's my real last question, which is, You left NPR. You had a coveted, coveted role in the Halls of Mm. Power. You left it. Are you sitting here feeling anxious at all or or not? Oh, yeah. I am so freaking anxious right now. Um, Actually, no, let me rephrase that. You have somehow calmed me down during this conversation. Oh, good. (laughs) But, um, you know, as you just mentioned So my memoir came out and I basically decided to quit my incredibly prestigious six-figure salary job. (laughs) Uh, And again, reminder, I don't come for money. And I I guess I'm not worried enough about it uh, to, to not take risks. But I basically, listen, I was making a bet on myself. My bet was, listen, I've just written a book that's critically acclaimed and getting a lot of respect and recognition I've got a limited window of time to ride the book wave. Can I, with the credentials I built at NPR and the respect I build through this book, can I then pivot into the next leg of my journalism career? That next leg for me looks like a combination of writing more books, um, starting and hosting a show that's my own, um, possibly getting into um, the screen and and I've been having you know conversations that are that are more you know sort of with with film and entertainment people and you know the part of why I'm kind of on edge right now is I'm like literally right now waiting for the final details of a contract I'm about yeah. to sign for the new show that I'm hosting so like 
um, I will tell you that even as I share that fact with you, I want to be so honest with you more. It's like, I'm telling you, oh, I'm about to sign a contract because it's like, I don't want to seem like some unemployed loser, right? Mm. Like that's like, that's like the story in my head because self-employed and unemployed can look and feel a lot alike, depending on the story you tell yourself. And, and this past year, which, you know, I started like designing my own thing and then happened. And then suddenly every company that could possibly buy my thing is like, oh, we don't know if we have a budget. Oh, we're doing layoffs. Like I was like, wow, girl, you really chose a great time to be an entrepreneur in the media. (laughs) But, you know, I actually think I did choose a great time. So I think that I had a good three months of real uncertainty at the start of COVID-19. And now again, I'm seeing things level off. To bring it back full circle, being an immigrant kid has definitely prepared me for this uncertainty. That's it for today's show. Thanks to my producer, Mary Dew, and thanks to Liz Sanchez for her help producing. Thanks to the team at HBR and the studio team who make the audio happen. I'm grateful to our guests for sharing their experiences and their truths, for you, our listeners, and for our advertisers. Please send me feedback. You can email anxiousachiever at gmail.com or tweet me at moraam. And if you love the show, tell your friends or subscribe and leave a review. From HBR Presents, this is Maura Aarons-Mealy.